Humanity in Healthcare is, is seeing and being seen and hearing and being heard and healing and being healed. More human healthcare means I know what matters to my patients, not just what's the matter with and them. More human healthcare means extending kindness, compassion and fair treatment regardless of my faith, nationality and race. Remembering that underneath it all, we're all human. More human healthcare means remembering everyone involved is human. As staff, it would mean the umbrella of safety and compassion is extended to me. As a patient, it would mean not to be unfavorably cared for because of who I am. More human healthcare means a warm and listening face, an attitude of respect, and an honest and open response. Humanised healthcare for me is more than just dressing my wounds. It's holding my hand, looking into my eyes, asking how I feel, it's checking that I'm not scared, treating me like a human being. So welcome to the Humanising Health podcast series in front of Care Foundation. And today's episode explores ideas around humanising care from the perspective of mental health services and people with mental health conditions. I'm Beth Fitzsimons and I'm the Chief Executive for Point of Care Foundation. And today I'm really grateful to welcome Professor Bev Sapri, who's a consultant psychiatrist at the Cheshire and Wirral Partnership Trust. So you're very welcome, Bev, and it's not often you get two Bevs on the same conversation. <laughs> you also have a range of really interesting roles. So tell us a bit about those and, and your involvement in mental health. Well, thanks for having me here, Bev. It's, uh, it's, it's a real delight to be part of this conversation. So yes, as, you, as you've said, I'm a practicing psychiatrist in the NHS and I work in Cheshire and Wirral, specifically in the perinatal service. Uh, and I've been a consultant here now for in the Trust for getting on for 10 years but as a as a, an, a couple of additional roles which you know can, doctors in the NHS when you get to a senior position invariably do want to take up other roles I do wear a couple of other hats so I have always throughout my career as a doctor from when I was a junior doctor have been a reservist in the army with a, a field hospital and as a as, as my career has gone I've been a psychiatrist within the military as well as the reserves. So I've had opportunities to spend time at departments of military community psychiatry through my training. I take a specific role and interest in veterans affairs. So I've had lots of time spent in developing and understanding the needs of veterans in the NHS as a result of wearing my two hats. And kind of shooting on from that really then is my my involvement with the University of Chester where I'm now um, a visiting professor but mainly I'm involved with the veterans research department there so conducting teaching training and hopefully progressing research into the well-being of veterans. Well that's a fascinating range of perspectives that you bring to this conversation. Well I guess the first question that I'd like to start with is as you know, the Point of Care Foundation's mission is to humanise healthcare. And I begin all of these conversations with the question, what does this term humanising healthcare mean to you personally and for mental health services? Mm. Well, thank, thanks for this question, Evan. I gave it a good bit of thought as to what that 
question really means for me. And I guess for when it comes to the terms humanising healthcare, for me, it's about putting patients at this heart of the care that we do and considering them as unique individuals rather than as a diagnosis or a disability. It's about being patient-centred and considering the full picture of what that person actually is and who they are and see not, and not to just see them in the context of their illness. So in particular, when you think of healthcare, but mental health care in particular, stigma is a particular issue and it can be associated with barriers for people to access care. But even when they do, there's lots of feelings of shame and inferiority around the fact that they need your help to address their mental health needs. For me, as a psychiatrist, I feel my role in humanising that care is to remind them about their strengths and the courage that they've shown in seeking and accepting care and embed that in every dialogue I have with them. Mental health can sometimes, or at least I think in days gone by, has felt like it's about making a diagnosis and giving a treatment, which might well have mostly been medication. I like to think we've really moved on from that and we've become, we've become much more multidisciplinary in what we can offer. So to be truly holistic in our care, I think we have to think family. So this person in front of me isn't just my patient, they're a partner, a parent, a child, a colleague, a friend. And considering all of those roles in what their needs are has got to be important in, in making sure they have the treatment they need and go on a road to recovery because all of those roles are you know, potentially really important to that person. Overall, that's for me kind of the key things for humanising healthcare. And, you know, I, I really think, think family, think person. Who is this person? Not just that they're my patient. Thanks for that, Bev. What do you think that would be like, you know, if you were um, a patient accessing services that are provided in that way, that in the way that you've described, how would that feel different from perhaps what we imagine some mental health services to have been 20 years ago or so? How would that feel like a different experience, do you think? I think now, certainly in the service I, I work in, and hopefully I'll get to mention a little bit more of, of what my specific service does, but when the person comes into the service, it's about including the other people who are relevant to them as well. So when we have our appointments, uh, you know, we welcome that, you know, if you've got childcare issues, is there something we can do to, to work around that? If you've got a partner or a significant other or, or uh, you know, a carer who's, you know, your family member or a friend, do they want to be part of the dialogue and what would they want to contribute to the discussion and how much would you want them to be party to what care is, is given to you? But really that increasingly it's less about this di a dialogue of I'm the doctor or the clinician and I'm asking you questions to it being a conversation. What is it that today we can do together and that it's a partnership through that recovery for that person, that it's not just they will be done to they will be part of the story. I'd like to think that, you know, patients' experience now is moving towards that increasingly rather than it just being that they are passive recipients of care, they are part of the conversation and they get to they get to a big say as to how we progress things ultimately. It's impossible to have a conversation about healthcare at the moment without mentioning the pandemic. And I'm interested mm. to know how you feel that that's affected the mental health services has anything changed for the better and what's gotten worse? 
Yeah, the pandemic has, has a, you know, healthcare across the board has struggled. And I'd certainly say my own reflections over the last year, you know, I have kind of mixed feelings about what's happened that's good and what, what things have kind of maybe we've stepped back and had setbacks with. So, yeah, very challenging time. And I think initially when at the very start of the pandemic, like a lot of services, it was a very belts and braces approach. And we kind of got on with things and patients were extremely understanding that, you know, their visits had been curtailed and they were having telephone consultations instead. You know, really, there was that general sense of morale around let's roll in it together. And that felt okay and manageable for the first couple of months, but invariably in mental health, people, even when they're struggling, can hold hold things together for themselves for a short period of time. It's very hard to sustain that, specifically on a background of maybe a lot of isolation that people are feeling, which we know contributes to poor mental health and well-being. So initially, lots, lots went back to telephone and video and consultations that were remote. And that was really difficult in mental health because a lot of what we do is about relationships. It's about the unseen communication through body language, um, you know, those those silences that take place in the room. And we were we really felt like we were missing that. And certainly as a clinician, I kept worrying about what I wasn't seeing and what I wasn't understanding through the way that we were communicating. But we, we know mental health services never sh- shut shop. We always kept providing. If people needed face-to-face consultations, that still happened. We just have to do it more on a case-by-case basis. What we've noticed, I would say, and my colleagues would probably share this, is that for some patients, mental health has really been really significantly affected by the fact that the pandemic has brought so many new issues, not just to, to the fact that their mental health care has been limited. A lot of the social support they would have had through charitable organisations or local community projects, all of that stopped. So people became increasingly, our patients became increasingly vulnerable to being isolated, to not having their care met, not just mentally for their mental health, but their social and psychological needs that were met elsewhere had also been limited. And, you know, the impact of job losses, uh, pressure on finances, bereavement, strain on family relationships as people were suddenly cocooned at home with, with family members who otherwise, you know, would have had time apart. If there was already strained relationship, there was even more pressure put on those relationships. So this, we saw lots of new mental illness for the first time for people who were hitting crisis point because all of these things were, you know, a challenge for them. But within all of that, it's, I wouldn't say it's all been negative. I've certainly seen some real growth in some of my patients who previously thought they weren't capable of coping, really shone in this pandemic that they suddenly became leads for support groups because they felt they had time to do it, that they suddenly felt that there'd been a calling for them. And for some of my patients, they've really stepped back and thought, wow, if I can cope with what's happened to me in the last year, I've actually got more strength than I actually thought I had. So a bit of a mixed bag, but it's not all been bad, I would say. There's been certainly some growth for for many people who thought they didn't have the resilience to cope. Well, it's always good to think, to consider both sides of it. And I guess for everybody who prefers face-to-face consultation, there is going to be somebody who for whom circumstances make that difficult and some of the perhaps increased flexibility about other modes of communication can suit some people. Mm. And I suppose yeah. as long as it's we're matching it to that individual person's needs rather than mm. um, a sort of one-size-fits-all, I guess that's the main thing. 
Yeah, and I would certainly say I've got some patients who have said, you know, I um, wouldn't have made it to my appointments because I've got transport issues, I'm agoraphobic, I've got children, I can't get anywhere, I can't pay for parking, I can't, you know, they've been able to access care in a way that they might not have done previously. So I'm just thinking about the way services are organised. And I think, I mean, we, at the Point of Care Foundation, we start from the, the sort of premise that the vast majority of people go into healthcare with the absolute best of intentions and they they do it because they want to do the best for patients. What do you think gets in the way of of a more humanised healthcare system from your experience? I mean, having been a consultant now for, you know, as as long as I have, I've seen lots of change keep coming by, even in the short, relatively short period of my career. And I think what I've increasingly encountered to the frustration of myself, my colleagues is, is I guess we work in really complex systems and they're not easy to manoeuvre and they're not easy to manoeuvre for me as a person in the system who knows a lot more about how to get things done. But, you know, I can only but imagine my patients absolutely don't feel that they have any power or control over how they access care. They're at the, they're at the mercy of what healthcare professionals will refer them to and allow them to engage with. So bureaucracy, challenges in kind of seeking advice. You know, sometimes I think in days gone by, a GP wanted advice from a specialist. They could probably know them by name, pick up the phone and just call them. Now we've got complex referral forms, triage systems, they have to go to a central hub. It means that the person element of those relationships between professionals has has broken down to an extent and it just makes the system clunkier. We we really want to standardise care and a lot of that unfortunately comes with the negative element of when you try to standardise care, things can become slightly tick boxy. So for patients coming into care and having those initial contacts, even once they've got to the point that they're at having those assessments, filling in this form, filling out that form, while they all have a purpose, I think they they take a step back from actually, we're here to serve your needs rather than our audit trail. I, I worry that that's the message we're giving to patients. I need to do this because my system requires it rather than because you need it. And patients really, you know, when you see maternity care, when women take around their own notes and have control over the opportunity to read their notes when they want and have the, you know, they've given a responsibility of looking after them. I, I worry that, you know, we, we don't really give patients that sort of control and actually should we be so that they feel that they're at the centre of, of what's going on. So, yeah, bureaucracy, definitely. What do you think can be done about some of the things that sort of take the person out of the the care? Is there anything that you can do as a clinician? What would you say to somebody, a young junior doctor just entering specialty training about how to try and preserve that sort of human element? I think one of the key things which, you know, services, you know, are taking steps to try and do more of is bringing lived experience into all of the decisions that we make within services from the grassroots of the care we deliver to how we develop systems and we modify and develop services. So having peer support workers within teams for patients, you know, lived experience consultants, having patient participation groups who we consult with before we implement any change. So if we want to make a new assessment form, change a referral process, change the the type of information we share when we send out clinic letters consulting with patient reference groups I think 
has got to sit at the heart of everything we do because without an understanding that it's what patients want, you know, we can have all the great ideas as healthcare professionals, but it's got to be received well by the people who it's intended for. So I think that's really important. I think giving patients control, I think we, we, as referred to about the complex, you know, systems, I don't think patients necessarily feel they're in control. They have to wait for someone to do something for them or to be done to. And actually, you know, can we look at allowing patients to self-refer for certain things? Can we allow them to access dialogue with and conversations with specialists or specialists or accessing care in a way that they don't have to rely on someone else referring them or have to wait for their GP to, to make that referral? And, you know, include them in the correspondence. You know, increasingly the Royal, Joint Royal Colleges are saying when you write our clinic letters, address them to your patients. Don't address them to the person who referred who referred the patient to you. Make the patient the person who's who you're writing to, because ultimately it's their care and it's their it's their care plan. So I think that's a real big one. And coming back to include families, include families, relevant parties, and whoever's involved in supporting your patients, because I think they have a lot to contribute and a lot to a lot to give in terms of helping the patient. Occasionally, we we come across people in our work who are sort of fearful about giving up that degree of control to the patients because they fear they're going to be inviting um, unreasonable demands, or you know that 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 what people are going to be wanting, they're they're not going to be able to satisfy. What do you think about that? Yeah, and and, and I hear that quite a lot, really, and and I admit myself when there's been times we've said about giving more autonomy to patients, that's the the instant kind of gut reaction that comes to me, like, oh gosh, we're going to be overwhelmed. But from what I understand of a number of services, certainly in my local area, where they've gone to even self-referral, they do that in the child and adolescent services, there's no evidence that they have actually been overwhelmed by people referring in. And as I've increasingly started to work with patient participation groups, I find the dialogue's really sensible. Patients really want to use the NHS well. They see it as something that belongs to them and they want to make sure it's used appropriately and that resources are used fairly. So I think maybe this is just um, an assumption, unfortunately, that we make in healthcare that that's going to happen. And there will be a minority of people, I think, that might not always understand and and have unrealistic expectations but for the best part, the patients usually want to be on our side and want to get the best out of the service for the greater good of everybody else as well. So I think I think that's slightly misplaced understanding from what the evidence would should would suggest from services that do give patients more autonomy. Yes, and I mean we should be we should be making that sort of our rules and systems for the majority, not the very small minority for whom Absolutely. it might not work. So if you could if you could change two or three things in the system in your area of work that would make a big difference to people with mental health needs and for the people providing the services actually what what would you do if you had a magic wand and you could change two or three big big or small things well certainly I've already alluded to my kind of real interest in patient participation but I would really be looking to bring patients into into what we deliver in our care so you know have patients involved in interview panels I think we try to do it but we don't I don't think we do it as well as we could give patients a voice set up networks certainly in my area of work uh, I work in perinatal psychiatry and we have perinatal networks, regional networks, and we have 
patient participation groups that come to it. So in Wirral, we have Wirral Maternity Voices, and they make such a valuable contribution to how we shape services. And we really get to understand what the issues that patients have in, in, in a forum where it's not that they're the patient, they're there as uh, stakeholders. And it's about thinking of patients as stakeholders, I really think. You know, we um, have a patient participation group and we actually have an employed member of that group as part of our service. And every single pathway that's developed, we consult with them before it goes live to say, does this read well? Is this Does this meet your needs? Is, does this tick the box that we, we want it to in terms of, you know, what we're trying to achieve? But does the, what we want is that, does that align with what patients actually want? And, and I think what we could do better at is actually seeking feedback from patients and their families and act on it. I know we're in a growing culture of seeking feedback, but sometimes what happens with that feedback isn't very clear as to how that shapes things. So I think it needs to be a little bit more than, we're great at getting feedback, but actually we need to be transparent as to then what we do with that feedback. So we should be keen to say, look, this is the feedback we had. This is the good stuff. This is maybe the stuff we need to work on. And feedback to our stakeholders, again, who are predominantly should be our patients and their families and say, look, now this is what we're acting on. So less of the, the, the kind of pressure to say we've all had positive feedback, which is what generally we, we want to always do. But actually say these are the areas we've understood aren't doing quite so well. This is what we plan to do. Or have you got ideas out of how we can improve it? And putting that back into including patients and their families in that dialogue. So certainly for me, it's about being more inclusive with our patients and their families in how we shape things. I think my service, I'm really proud to say, are doing a good job at you know making inroads with this, but I don't think this is across the board yet. And you know, seeing peer support workers and every team in mental health would be a real great thing for us to strive for, I think. Great. I mean, that leads me on to my final question, really, which is, are the grounds for optimism that we're headed in the right direction? And you've talked a little bit about your service, so that might be a place to, to start. Yeah, so I work in uh, perinatal mental health services, and we're really lucky that we're, we're at the kind of one of the top priorities for growth in terms of need within mental health. I'm really optimistic, you know, about what we're doing. And it's, it is kind of making waves across the whole of mental health to, for, for change to happen. So looking at expanding services and getting other organisations, we're much better at networking with other services and thinking creatively. So with the push with social prescribing and working with third sector, I think we've got really good at being innovative. So in my service, we work with charitable organisations who support mums with mental health problems. We try to do some joint working with them in the care that we provide. There's growth in, in perinatal with um, an understanding about trauma in birth and about supporting women uh, and, and, you know, understanding that this is a significant event that's happened and that, and that, and that sometimes for some women that's not always a, a positive experience and that they need, you know, significant support afterwards. So, you know, I, I think as I've seen this, the, the NHS change and even despite the pandemic, We've, we've really shown that we can innovate and work creatively. This past year, the way we've embraced technology, that we you know e-consultations, you know, I, I would never imagined in such a short period of time we could make so many changes to still continue to deliver care. And we've done it alongside with, you know, so much patience shown and cooperation from our patients 
So it's just, it does fill me with optimism that we we can still get better because I do think even with all the pressures of finances on the NHS and the pandemic, we, we you know, th- things continue to improve overall, but we do have a challenge ahead of us. That's great. And I think mental health has been way ahead in the, the sort of involvement of patients um, service users um, over the years but I guess that combination with maternity services where the, the whole movement towards women being much more autonomous in relation to their pregnancies and births is a sort of really golden sort of combination really so that's that's really great to hear. Thanks so much Bev for, for sharing your insights with me today and I think these are really important conversations that we need to continue to have so thank you very much. My thanks to Bev Sapri for spending her time and sharing her insights with me. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Humanising Healthcare podcast today and will join us again when we return for our next series. You can catch up on past episodes on Spotify, Apple, Google and many other podcast platforms. And I hope that you will sign up to subscribe to the podcast from the platform of your choice. If you want to find out more about the Point of Care Foundation and our mission to humanise healthcare, you can visit us at pointofcarefoundation.org.uk or follow at Point of Care Foundation on Twitter. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for listening and goodbye.